0: embarrassing all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to
1: my senses? Welcome, neighbor, to Folk U Radio, Folk University's talk show, taking old school viral. I'm your host. Amanda O'Fox-Gillespie.
0: It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to my senses?
1: What do you know? Today is a Folk University 101 show. We go deeper into archaeology, the science of once and future things with professor and neighbor, Dr. Brian Hayden, archaeologist, who has taught and done research with Simon Fraser University, University of British Columbia, and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Although his archaeological and ethnoarchaeological research has taken him around the world, today we are particularly going deeper into the past of British Columbia. I invite your questions during the show to the Folk University email at u at folku.ca. So that's u at folku.ca. Or call in during the breaks at 250 935 zero zero thank you so much dr Hayden sure <laughs> thanks for
2: spelling that out too <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's a mouthful <laughs> um, so I was hoping you could start today by giving us a little bit of a uh, encapsulated what we need to know about archaeology to move forward and what did we cover last time but instead of in two hours and millions of years we're gonna just start take that right down to a few minutes.
2: Right. Okay. And before we start, I should mention that uh, I've got some uh, books that uh, some people have given me on archaeology that I'd be glad to pass on to other people, introductory texts and uh, some books on aerial archaeology. So if you're interested, either get in touch with Manda or myself, and I'd be happy to pass them on. So... Um, Last time we talked about uh, what archaeology is, and it's hard work, and it's the study of things in general. I mean, our focus is on understanding the past, and so we do that by studying things from the past, because that's all we got. Um, And uh, most of that is trash. Uh, And I mentioned that stone tools were sort of the first industrial waste products. They're sort of the equivalent of plastics today um and they 're just all over the place um, <clears throat> and uh, I also emphasize that there's a particular archaeological perspective that um, in, in interpreting these things i mean it 's based on things, um, but we see them as part of a system, and this idea of system is actually fairly important and I wanted to reemphasize that if i 've got a, an old pocket watch here from um from about 1910 and it it exemplifies what we mean by system when thinking of culture as a system because if you open it up and take a look at all the gears and and wheels and uh, mechanisms inside um, you can you can take all those out uh you know unscrew everything and just toss them in a box and shake it up and you've got all the parts, but it's not a system. It's not a watch, okay? So the system is how things are interrelated, their connection to each other, and, uh, and that's really the way we see the material items that we excavate. Um, that is, they were parts of a watch, if you like, parts of a cultural system, and or, uh, our job is to try to figure out how it all fit together, and how it worked in the past. So we've got part of the system. We don't have the whole thing, but we can infer a lot from it. And I try to emphasize or uh, show how that worked by looking at modern trash last time. Um, <clears throat> so in order to do that uh, and how figure out how things relate to each other, we need context. Uh, and I was trying to emphasize that uh, the objects that we find from the past are really like the words in a book um, and the sites that we excavate are like books and they tell a story and if you uh, rip out the words from the book uh, basically you can't say very much but if you have the whole book in front of you and see how the words relate to each other then you can reconstruct a story and obtain a lot more meaning and understanding of what was in the past. <clears throat> so the people that go around and dig up stuff in archaeological sites, they're like, big, they're like book burners. And, uh, you know, they're destroying uh, history. They're destroying the past. And I didn't mention this last time, but I know of at least one major uh, construction on Cortez Island that just dug right through uh, one of the largest, I think probably the largest shell midden on Cortez Island uh, to put their house in. And uh, it may be the largest shell midden in the in this particular region as well. At any rate, so it, it's a major concern. Um, and the other important thing about archaeology is the time depth, and because we get these long sequences, and we can see things changing over time. And so, uh, one of the big questions that archaeologists deal with is why things change uh, and how they change. <clears throat> so. Um, also talked about uh, archaeology as being the pioneer, really, in developing the concept of evolution uh, way before Darwin ever came on the scene and, uh, and how they started testing this idea of evolution through excavations. And as a result, we get this, this framework that is still with us today. Uh, it's called the Three Age Framework of the Stone Age and the Bronze Age and then the Iron Age. So, um so that's basically what uh, we covered last time. And we just started to get into some of the, the big questions. Um, uh, when archaeology started out, one of the big questions was how old were things? Because at the time, the uh, the leading uh, savants and of the time thought that the world was only about 6,000 B.C. old. I mean, it was created in 6,000 B.C., And so that was obtaining ages for cultures was a major challenge at the time. Um, And so uh, we have, one of the things I wanted to emphasize is that within the discipline and within every science, we get a wide range of, of attitudes towards the past and the world that we live in. And there's some people that look for generalities and some people that only are interested in the particular things. And so what they do is, you know, they tend to interpret everything as very particular instances uh, due to historical developments, etc. Whereas other people are looking for the laws, if you like, you know, the laws of gravity, the laws of uh, chemistry, the laws of physics um, and cultural uh, regularities as well the effect of ecology, economics, and things like that. So we get these polar opposites. And similarly, there's um, differences in attitudes as to how much patterning really exists in the universe. Um, In biology, we have people like Stephen Jay Gould, who says that evolution is a random process and there's no directionality to it. It's all accident, Whereas other people see major regularities, you know, going from single-cell uh, organisms to multi-cell organisms to uh, the first uh, algae, the, the first, uh, uh, you know, fish and bacteria and things like that. Um, on up through uh, the first um, amphibians and then into mammals and then into larger mammals, dinosaurs. Um, along the way, the reptiles into dinosaurs <laughs> and then mammals. Um, and so some people see that as a an evolutionary trend uh, and having some directionality in terms of increasing complexity. Other people, like Stephen Jay Gould, say, no, 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 it's all just uh, accidents. So we get these different attitudes towards interpreting the past, and it's important to recognize that when we're reading uh, or, or you're listening to people talk about the past and talk about uh, science and talk about the world in general, whether it's history or anything else. So how much patterning there is in the universe is a really big question. Uh, how much of what we do is due to free will as opposed to you know, genetics or environment or economy or upbringing or other kinds of constraints? so uh, huge differences in opinions about those things so one of uh, one of the other things i wanted to um, mention in just in general before we get into the specifics of uh, of you know the past in british columbia is that uh, every science but archaeology in particular uh, every science has three bodies of theory uh one body is relatively certain things and one body is relatively probable things things that are still being tested out and and uh, and argued about um and then every every science also has a body of speculation you know in which there're just things opening are uh, ideas are opening up new ideas are coming on board and you're trying to figure out whether string theory is right or whether, you know, quantum theory is right, and um, whether how far we can push these. And so there are ideas that are being developed, and there are always new ideas coming on board and new things progressing through the system to probable versus certain things. So, <clears throat> so archaeology is um, developed. A, it's got the same body of theories uh different at different levels different stages of development and uh we don't it's a fairly young science it's only been around for uh one and a half centuries basically uh so we don't have a huge body of certain things but we do have some things we can say with certainty and uh those include the age of things uh we now have very robust means of determining the age of things we can say with Absolutely certainty that uh, our stone the first stone tools were at least two million years old two to three million years old, for instance. we can date cultures we know that the uh, celts were you know started out around six hundred bc um, et cetera, et cetera. We can determine when the first people came into North America for instance with pretty you know a fairly good certainty uh, uh, some of the earliest dates may be in the probable range of things, but you know, it's uh, everybody agrees that it's within you know the last fifteen to twenty thousand years, pretty much. Um, and then another body of relatively certain things um, is that uh, evolution has taken place, both uh, biological evolution of the human species and cultural evolution. Uh, we can demonstrate that. With you know, from literally billions and billions of observations, uh, millions of excavations, or at least hundreds of thousands, probably millions, and billions of artifacts that have been recovered. Um, so we're we're pretty yeah we're very certain about those things, as we are about um, you know the 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 um, literal literal uh, account of the creation of the world from the Bible, we can be pretty sure that that's not accurate um, and that evolu- the evolutionary scenario is more accurate. Um, as well, we can be pretty sure that there have been no extraterrestrial influences in um, in the evolution of culture and in human life uh, as we've uh, experienced it so far. Like, Every organism creates waste. I mean, by its very nature, organisms need to, and cultures, need to acquire energy and process it in order to turn it into their structures and uh, and activities. And we just don't get any waste in the archaeological record from any ter- extraterrestrial kinds of influences at all. Uh, as, as I say, after a hundred and... Uh, one and a half centuries of looking at things in the ground and billions of artifacts that have been excavated. So uh, so those are some of the more certain things. There may be a few more, but uh, we get into, uh, after that, we start getting into more probable things. Now that we've settled the question of how old things are, we're starting to look at um, some of the other big questions, like uh, what was the political and social and economic structure like? What was ritual life like? Uh, so we're really turning our attention towards these other areas that are now much more um, contested and people argue about. We can see some probable things, but uh, there's still still a lot of room for testing and exploration. So uh, and so today, some of the big questions. Uh, that dominate discussions in, in archaeology are, for instance, the origins of inequality. Uh, that's a, a major issue. Uh, and the role of identity has become very common and also differences in genders. Uh, it's become fairly uh, a focus of things in recent times. And also uh, the reasons for the domestication of plants and animals, which is arguably uh, underlies the development of civilizations. So, um, yeah, and the the change from basically tribal levels of societies to uh, chiefdoms up through civilizations, you know, why those things happened. Um, Others are all being very uh, actively contested at this point. So those are some of the big uh, the big issues. And uh, certainly British Columbia is not immune from dealing with those kinds of, some, some of those issues. And I've been interested in my own research and trying to uh, understand the, the social and economic and political dynamics of some of the early cultures in British Columbia going back uh, several thousands of years. So... Um, yeah, I guess we can uh, maybe turn to some of those things.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think every, oh, we all want to know a little bit more about what archaeology can mm-hmm. tell us, and que- and these questions in particular can tell us about what we can know and and speculate about our past, humans past here in BC. Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, we, we always try to get beyond speculation, but we always start with that. You know, everybody, when you don't know anything about anything, you know, when the first people arrived in British Columbia or in the New World, they didn't know anything about, you know, the past or uh, the living cultures here. And so there was lots of speculation, you know, lost tribes of Israel coming through and building mounds in uh, eastern uh, North America. And there's all sorts of you know, strange stories going on. And since nobody knew anything at the time, it all seemed possible. But uh, now we know that, yeah, the Lost Tribes of Israel did not come to North America and build, build mounds here. So another certain conclusion. <laughs> so, um, okay, um, so <clears throat> we begin and... In uh, British Columbia, we're very fortunately situated at a key spot for understanding the, the colonization, if you like, the initial colonization by people of, of the New World, uh, because they definitely came from Asia, uh, Northeast Asia. Uh, whether they came by sea or by land is, uh, is one of the issues that uh, is being discussed um, today. And so British Columbia has both straddles the the, car, the land corridor that came between the two ice sheets, and uh, the sea corridor. Uh, and so those are the two models. Either people came over the Beringian land bridge, um, fourteen to fifteen to twenty thousand years ago, and came through um, the interior. Uh, going through Alberta mainly, but um, or and then spread out through the rest of the continent, or they came along the coast, and it was Knut Fladmark uh, from Simon Fraser University, one of the my uh, people who worked in the same department as me, uh, who initially uh, promoted this idea of of a sea uh, a coastal colonization route. Uh, that people came along the coast because that's where all the resources were. There were lots of shellfish, lots of fish, uh, as well as seaweed and other things. Um, <clears throat> so that uh, he was making a very strong argument for that, but the traditional view was always that they came uh, by land and between the ice sheets uh, when, and came down into central uh, or western Canada uh, when the sh- ice sheets parted, uh From the coastal ranges here and from the center and i should i should mention that um uh one some of the other more certain conclusions that archaeology has developed along with the other environmental sciences is that uh there were ice ages here, and as uh as we're sitting in this office uh in the radio station here. We can imagine that uh, you know, 15,000 years ago, 12,000 years ago, um, we wouldn't have been sitting here, uh, been able to be sitting here, because it would have been uh, we we would have been covered by over a kilometer of ice, uh, just all up and down the coast here, uh, and so these uh, huge ice sheets that spread, um, you know, in the last uh, over the last million years, they ki- they came and they went a number of times, uh, but that's a very definite, certain uh, conclusion from the related sciences. Um, But it was a very different environment, and there was so much ice that it dropped the sea level, uh, like uh, 600 feet at the the peak, um, because all the water was locked, locked up in ice. And so we know about possible sea level changes today because of melting ice. Well... In the past, it was much, much more dramatic, uh, just 600 feet lower. So, if people did come along the coast during the ice age, uh, when there's still ice here, um, most and afterwards, well, it, it would have been down much lower. The, the settlements along the coast would have been down uh, three to 600 feet. And so, when the ice mel- melted, the sea level rose, of course, to the level today, and all of those sites would now be underwater, almost all. There's a balancing act between the sea level dropping because the ice, the water was locked up in ice, but also along the coast here because there was so much ice on the mountains and along the coastal range here that the weight actually pressed down the crust of the earth so that the crust lowered itself too. So the sea level was going down, but the but the mountain, the the crust of the earth was also going down, and in there was a it's like a seesaw kind of thing. In some areas, um, the uh, the water went down more than the than the crust did. In some areas, the crust went down more than the water did. In some areas, they stayed about the same. So uh, we have to look uh, today either underwater which uh, Daryl Fedgey has been doing up in the Queen Charlottes and finding materials that go back, you know, 10,000 years. Or we try to look for things above the water that were just in the equilibrium point of the seesaw uh, so that they went down about the same level, same amount as the sea level dropped and then came back up about the same amount. So it's very complex. Uh, I don't know if you've followed all that, but the the uh, the end of the story is that it's very complex, but we can find some some spots along the coast here that were at sea level, even during the height of the glacial, glacial maximum, but most of it's underwater. Um, so, at any rate, that's a, a big issue. Everybody always wants to know when people first came to the North American uh, continent, and... So it's actively under discussion. But, um, yeah, we've recently got uh, some early dates from along the coast uh, at this maximum, about 14,000 from Triquet Island. And, um, and um, so if we want to know what the, what the groups were like that came into this area initially, uh, we need to look at um, what societies were like in the rest of the world, in Siberia, for instance, at that time, or along the coast, even as far as Japan, places like that. Um, and here we get into a, a fairly major... Well, I mean, we know that there was no domesticated plants or animals, so that people are what we refer to as hunters and gatherers and also fishers, obviously, Um and uh, when we look at ethnographic groups that were hunters and gatherers, uh, which included all of the groups in, in, basically all the groups in Western Canada, um, the only ones that uh, had agriculture or horticulture were the Iroquois back, back east in uh, Ontario and Quebec. So everybody else was pretty much hunting and gathering. Uh, and there is a basic difference, well, fundamentally two different types of hunters and gatherers that uh, occur ethnographically. Well, there's a group that we can call simple hunters and gatherers and complex hunters and gatherers. And the first groups to come into the New World, the first groups to come into British Columbia were simple hunters and gatherers. They have all the characteristics, very small groups, maybe 10 to 20 or 30 people, Um, highly mobile uh, because basically they went to one spot and hunted and fished and gathered plants as much as they could for the given spot that they were in. And when the returns dropped, you know, it became more and more difficult to find animals to hunt or find plants. Uh, then they moved on to another's location. So they were mobile. Um, sometimes we call them foragers, too. Um, so small groups, uh, very mobile, uh, in order to survive. And very limited technology, too. Very simple technology, very limited the something that was not meant to um, hunt or harvest massive amounts of uh, animals or plants. Um, And when we look at how the social and uh, economic organization of these groups is arranged, we find that it's highly cooperative, that in order to survive, everybody needed to share uh Food, so if you go out hunting one day and you don't get any food, you don't get any animals uh, kill any animals or you go out fishing, you don't get any fish or you can't find any good plant resources uh what do you do i mean if if you want to be individualistic and not share uh and keep everything for yourself, then you go hungry a lot of the time, maybe even starve. but if everybody shares, you know everybody goes out and looks for food and comes back and uh, somebody is likely to find some food, uh, kill an animal or find, capture a fish or come back with some plant foods. If everybody shares, then everybody gets by because somebody in the group is likely to get something. So as a result, these initial uh, groups of simple hunters and gatherers or foragers um, develop a social structure that's totally different, totally alien to pretty much everything that we are familiar with. Uh, If you want to think of it as the initial uh, communist or socialist society, uh, where everybody uh, gives according to their abilities and takes according to their needs, you know, good old Karl Marx, uh, that's their society. Uh, They had inequalities based on ritual and... And gender and age and things like that, but in terms of food, everybody was pretty much equal, and in, in terms of resources, and so that's our that's our understanding and reconstruction of uh, traditional societies, um, and so individualism, because individualism promotes um, the uh, tendency not to share and to promote it promotes one's self interest. Uh, individualism is really downplayed. Everything is, all the emphasis is, is on the group and uh, the survival of the group and the, the good of the group. So that for these simple hunters and gatherers, even, especially today, uh, whether they're in South Africa or Australia or the Great Basin or the Boreal Forest, uh, those are the big areas where they existed or Tierra del Fuego, Um, those are the areas where we had a lot of simple hunters and gatherers uh, ethnographically. Uh, When they came in contact with contemporary society, colonial society, uh, that was the epitome of evil for them because it was so individually oriented. We had private property, uh, and everybody was uh, aggressive and out for gain, and... uh, and so that constituted everything the antithesis of simple hunting and gathering society the 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 ultimate in immorality if you like okay so it's not surprising that there's been so much disconnect between our type of society and society traditional hunting and gathering simple hunting and gathering societies so
1: I just have like a million questions, but Mm. the first one that might most easily fit within what you're still talking about is what can we either know or extrapolate about uh, social roles in the hunter gatherer society. So a lot of the things that we now, uh, you know, like the role of women were the role of women, just totally the same, or were they, uh, if they weren't staying home and doing agriculture, did they have a particularly different role that we can assume or know within a society Who looked after the children? Like, how was a completely egalitarian society run um, when it comes to things like partnering and childcare, et cetera?
2: Yeah, well, we could go on and on and on, you know, all day about some of these topics. But just quickly, um, uh, we did a a little uh, cross cultural study, comparative study, a number of years ago on just that question. And what we found is that there's uh, a huge amount of variability between hunting and gathering groups in terms of gender roles uh, and specifically childcare and things like that um, and women's status. Um, and uh, f- first of all, there's almost universally something called a sexual division of labor uh, in which uh, males take care of the big game hunting and women take care of mainly plant collecting and small animals like lizards or uh, you know rodents or things like that, capturing them. Um, and men do basically most of the heavy-duty woodworking um, for making spear throwers or spears or things like that. Women do, tend to do a lot more basketry, um, clothing, uh, taking care of shelters. So almost every group uh, has some sort of sexual division of labor. Um, And so the roles are fairly well defined in that domain. Um, In terms of relative status, status, what we found is that there's a really strong tendency in very severe environments where resources are very hard to get uh, for women's status to be below men's status. And they they always eat after the men eat or, uh, you know, carry the heaviest burdens, do most of the work, uh, many things like that. However, when we get into areas where there's not so much uh, stress on survival, um, women's status often is uh, on a par more or less with uh, men's status. And so they, you know, have things to say. Oh, another area men tend to dominate in is uh, intergroup politics, you know, relationships with other groups, because that's high risk. When you go out and you uh, encounter another group, you never know whether it's going to be um, a major fight you know, like um, and and killing involved. Whether they're enemies are gonna turn out to be enemies, or whether they're gonna be friendly and related to you, or what to say. so there's always high risk in making these contacts with other groups, and it's men that have the means of defending themselves, the spears um, and clubs and things like that, uh, so that they're the one and shields they're the ones that take the risk and uh, you know can defend themselves the best. And besides that, you know, women and children, like that's that's the future of the group. So you want to defend them most, even among baboons. It's the males that are on the outside of the troop when it moves and the women and uh, young baboons are in the center. So similar kind of logic, I think. Um, so that, uh, yeah, there is a, a fair amount of variation uh but it's it seems to be strongly related to the resources that are available, the environments uh, and things like that one one area there uh, is not very much division of um, sexual division of labor in is uh in ritual well in in uh shamanistic kind of uh roles um, men tend to have their own ritual space, at least the ones I'm familiar with. Like I was, I worked in Western Desert of Australia with groups uh, f- for my doctoral research. And, um, yeah, the men uh, tend to have the most important ritual roles and have very separate roles, whereas women have ritual roles in their own groups, but they're not as important, especially for these relationships between groups, um, and that's one way you can establish relationships between groups is by getting involved in rituals uh, together. So, and the whole question of you know why uh, humans developed uh, this propensity for rituals, for music, for dance, for the arts, for singing—that's uh, a whole other question that has to do with human evolution. But it's a fascinating area. And uh, lots of arguments, again, on that, uh, in that domain. But, um, you know, it did happen. And uh, as I said, ritual is used a lot in intergroup relationships so that uh, we can see the same, we can imagine the same things taking place uh, with the first groups coming into British Columbia, uh, you know, uh, probably up to and i would say that not much changed for the first uh 10,000 10, years or so uh of occupation in british columbia um and we can see we can imagine these hunters and gatherers in simple bands um just uh pretty much staying the same for yeah, thousands of years, and we don't see a huge amount of change, uh, just minor technical changes or changes in technology.
1: So that uh, leads me to, so to, if I understand correctly, then we we think that in this coastal area of BC that uh, that people came from Northeast Asia, and they came from the northern part of BC and. Via boats and down, um, yeah. okay, along the coast. And do we ha- is there do we have an understanding of why? Why would they have come here? And why did hunter gatherers take to their boats?
2: Uh, well, I should um, just before we get into that say that this this coastal route of migration into the New World has become more and more popular in the last uh, 10 or 20 years. And, uh, and it's become, there's been more and more evidence that's come to light that seems to be convincing that uh, it is probably the, the route that uh, people first took when they came into the New World. And as I say, the, the sea level was lower at that time so that there was, um, there was this land bridge between Siberia and Alaska um, because the sea level was lower and more land was exposed, so that there was no division, there was no interruption in the coast from, um, you know, eastern Asia on over to California and on further down south, uh, so that it was part of the later Paleolithic, Upper Paleolithic expansion into Arctic areas and subarctic areas. Uh, that we get in Siberia, in Japan. Uh, Japan, it goes back a little bit further, say, to 20-some uh, thousand years ago. Uh, Eastern Siberia, probably uh, comparable, if not even earlier. And so people just kept on uh, increasing in numbers and expanding the the ranges and exploring uh, new areas. Uh, and so it was just a gradual um, influx of people along the coast and drifting along the coast a little bit further away. And we get evidence for some sort of boats or sea craft going back to 60,000 years in Australia because Australia was never connected to the mainland. It was always a separate continent and the Sunda area, even when the sea level was lower, uh, but we get people entering Australia forty to sixty thousand years ago, so and they needed boats to do that. So that watercraft was definitely being uh, used, and it, to get to Japan as well, uh, same thing. But we don't get any evidence there until uh, the twenty thousand years or so. Um, so we know they had watercraft uh, at that at those these early time periods. And that they were using watercraft to get to islands to, you know, get more access to fish, shellfish, and sometimes land animals, uh, but also sea mammals, seals, and things like that. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, the first uh, we get a lot of sea mammal hunting in the first uh, in the first uh, occupations that we've been able to recover. For instance, in the, uh, in the site of uh, Triket, that uh, we get, in the early levels, uh, some of the first, uh, they're dominated mainly by sea mammal hunting seals and sea lions mainly.
1: So this might be a good time to explain what Triket Island is, what the archaeological site is there. Uh, there was, a, after the last show, a lot of people... We're quite excited to have you talk a little bit about this, um, which my understanding is it's the oldest known uh, archaeological site in North America of a village.
2: Right. Well, uh, there hasn't been a lot published on that, so I don't have a lot of the details. Uh, It's mainly been through the uh, media that the details have come out. But um, I... (sighs) I think uh calling it a village is a little bit of a hype um, so it was uh, <laughs> it was meant to catch media attention, I think. Uh, the site itself spans many thousands of years it uh, later in time, it certainly did become a village. Uh, but as I mentioned before, at this time period, we don't get uh, the only thing that we we have evidence for, is a very mobile, uh, very small groups that are usually not referred to as villages. Villages are more permanent, uh, much larger than some of these smaller bands of hunters and gatherers. And so the very early um, deposits, the early hearth that they uh, excavated at uh, Triket is, uh, as far as I know, uh, almost certainly... Uh, the remains of a small encampment, a hunting and fishing encampment, uh, that was very transitory. Um, may they may have been there for a few weeks, or maybe a month, or or even a bit more. But uh, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine, and certainly there's no evidence anywhere else for any village kind of occupation at that time period, or for the following ten thousand years, basically, or. At least uh no i wouldn't I would say for the following seven or eight thousand years at least um, but uh later in those deposits, I mean it was obviously a good place to to live and to hunt and fish and gather plants uh and so the people kept on coming back over the over the thousands of years, and they did establish a village there at some point, and so that the The arguments for a fire drill and a a fishing hook and things like that, those are from much later time periods. Those were from about 7,000 years ago. So, um, yeah, I need to um, moderate some of the claims, I think, for villages going back 14,000 years ago. Um, So, basically... um, one of, the, uh, one of the changes that occurred after the ice melted away about 10,000 years ago, uh, and we get lots of geological formations on Cortez Island of rock, rocks that have been glacially polished and uh, chatter marks in rocks uh, that ice has dragged uh, boulders over and things like that, and also some, uh, some shore terraces, et cetera. Um, so that the, the environment was changing very rapidly after deglaciation. And uh, what we see around us today is not really what was there initially. Uh, for instance, the cedar forests that, you know, so we think of as being here forever. No, sorry. The, the, the cedar forest really only became established about, uh, about 4,500 years ago. Say five thousand years, four to five thousand years ago. Um, so before that, it was uh, you know a very different kind of environment, and um, and we really only uh, start seeing an emphasis on fish like salmon uh, about the same time period. So this uh, this period of four to five thousand years ago is a is sort of a critical period when people start exploiting the the coastal resources much more intensively we get the first uh, shell middens during this time period the um this the stone tool technology of the groups on the coast starts becoming different from the ones that are in, in the interior so uh, so there's some sort of division that starts occurring Four to 5,000 years ago between the coast and the interior in terms of technology and uh, the small groups. Uh, The shell bins indicate that people are coming back to the same spot over and over and over again and probably being at least um, setting up camp uh, on a more permanent basis, at least for the season for the entire summer or the entire winter, for instance. Um, We also get uh, the first evidence of some sort of permanent uh, structures like uh, pit houses, Uh, these houses, structures that are dug into the ground and then roofed over. Um, So the first evidence of them comes up about the same time period, both on the coast and the interior. Um, We get the first evidence for for storage, uh, and for some sort of, um, uh, uh, more intensive use of salmon. Uh, there's, a, a complex way of determining from, uh, carbon isotopes how much salmon people have been eating because, uh, the salmon, the, the carbon in the ocean is different, has a different isotopic signature than the, than the carbon in, uh, on land here, and when people eat a lot of salmon, that carbon is uh, transformed into um, you know re- bone remains and uh, the organic tissues and the bones. And so we can tell from the from their bones how much salmon they've been eating. And you know if they're eating forty if if forty percent of their diet, which is about what it was five thousand years ago, if forty percent of their diet is from marine, uh, carbon, then uh, we can be pretty sure that they were eating um, and, and this is from the interior, by the way, <laughs> where the only marine carbon they're getting is from salmon. Uh, we can be pretty sure that the uh, that uh, they were storing salmon because salmon's really only available for a few weeks in the year, and that's not enough to create you know you don't eat forty percent of your diet in in two or three weeks. So we can be pretty sure that the rest is being stored. Um,
1: Wait, do we have any information about what percentage of the diet we think the coastal people? I mean, 40% for inland. That just makes me feel like, oh, the inland, the people, the coastland people must have had. Oh, more. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. And it increases over time, even in the interior. It goes up to 60 70%. Uh, later, uh, so this is you know, but we're talking about the beginning of uh, sort of an intensive exploitation of marine resources um, and on the coast, i don't know what the exact figure was, uh, but I think it was it's higher than forty percent, uh, certainly um, four thousand years ago, so <clears throat> uh, probably around sixty percent i'd have to go back and check, but uh, yeah. And we start getting the first groundstone adzes. I mean, I was talking, saying before that each artifact has a story to tell. Well, groundstone adzes are much more efficient in terms of heavy-duty woodworking. Uh, If you don't have a groundstone adze, uh, the only thing that you would have would be a a chopper, like uh, a chunk of uh, stone like this I'm holding right now with a sharp edge that's been uh, chipped uh, to make it sharp and uh you know they're not easy to hold but you know you bang on a tree with it it's not it's not very good for uh it's not very good for uh felling trees and things like that small saplings and making spears yeah you can do that with but uh for uh for making house posts or things like that or uh, fish weirs uh yeah they're very inefficient so that an ads, a groundstone adze uh, made out of nephrite, uh, which had to be traded in in most areas, um, that tells us that, no, people are doing a lot more heavy-duty woodworking, whether they're for houses or for fish weirs or for other things. Uh, and that's an important uh, thing to know about these past cultures, and that they're becoming more sedentary. The groups are becoming larger. Um And uh, we get the first cemeteries uh, at this time, about four thousand years ago. And cemeteries are usually interpreted by archaeologists as uh, reflecting corporate kinds of um, ownership and and with ancestors that you know you can refer to. And these are um, cemeteries are usually corporate kinship groups. Is what we like to refer to them as, uh, so families that that own resource areas, whether they're fishing areas or shell shellfish collecting areas or hunting areas, um, when we start getting cemeteries, we start thinking about corporate groups and um, and then we start asking, well what resources were they owning and um, things like that um we get uh, the first. Um, what else do I want to say here? Um, what I want to, <laughs> one point I want to make is that the there's a huge issue in archaeology today, whether it's in BC or Europe or the Near East or China, and trying and to understand how much inequality existed in some of these early uh, groups. And so people start arguing about whether there was social stratification, whether there were social inequalities. Um, And traditionally, in British Columbia, this period uh, from uh, about 4,000 to 5,000 years ago was always, and even 3,500 years ago, uh, was always considered as being relatively egalitarian uh, without any marked uh, differences socially or economically or anything else, even though they were starting to find librettes at this time period. And librettes are, uh, they're like earrings, but they're, uh, you know, punched through the lower lip usually or sometimes through the nose so, like a nose ring, but they're either wood or stone or bone uh, little plugs that you make a hole in your lip and then you put this stone in, uh, or uh, a bone or wood. Uh, and traditionally, this is considered as a some sort of uh, an attempt to show different roles, different statuses. Um, <clears throat> But they start showing up about this time period as well, so that's one indication. But you can say, well, it's just because somebody had was a little quirky and decided he wanted to, you know, just make himself look a little bit better. So it's you know you can't push it too far. At least some people say you can't. But then we also start getting um, some of these other developments like cemeteries and things like that, and. One of the uh, things that I found um, pretty mind-blowing, actually, from an archaeological perspective is that um, instead of, and while this was always the argument in the past is that there was no, no major inequalities in this time period, There have been some remarkable discoveries in the last 10 years, Um, and even some a little bit earlier, not quite as dramatic. But uh, Gary Copeland uh, wrote an, an article. He's done a lot of work along the coast here. He wrote an article in American Antiquity a few years ago about this one site and some of the others, but uh, the one site that he's dug on Vancouver Island, um, in the middle of Vancouver Island, that goes back to the same time period, about 4,000 years ago. And this site was eroding out of the bank, and it was a burial of a male individual about uh, 50 years old. Um, And uh, prior to this, you know, we'd, there had been some shell and stone beads that had been found, and uh, but not in great quantity. And beads have always been thought of as being one of those prestige items. You know, they don't really serve any function except to show off uh, prestige or um, ability to make or obtain these things. Um, and so he excavated this burial From this period is called the Charles phase. And in the burial there were he recovered three hundred and fifty thousand stone beads. Three hundred and fifty thousand stone beads. So that is just mind blowing. Uh, And if you make a if you can make a stone bead every ten minutes. That re- represents 35,000 hours of, <laughs> of work. Somebody working away 35,000 hours. Um, and so this is totally incompatible with ideas of egalitarian societies. This indicates major power, major wealth, ma- and there were also a 1,000 shell beads uh, with him as well. Uh, he's not the only one. He's the most extreme one, but another site uh, called Kitsi, uh well, they found 100,000 uh, disc beads. These are little shell disc beads or stone disc beads. And there have been a few others, uh, including one 14 um, uh, year old boy with, uh, or 10 to 14 year old boy with 53,000 uh, stone beads from the same time period. So these things have really Totally altered our view of when major inequalities were happening, and pushes it way back to at least 4,000 years ago. Um, some of the other aspects of, uh, of prehistoric society uh, have also, uh, well, slavery is one of the one of the aspect, other aspects that's also related to inequalities and the development of complex societies, if you like, <clears throat> because with if you have slaves, you got clearly stratified society, the slaves and the non-slaves, and then the elites. Um, uh, so there's a, there's a great book by Leland Donald called Aboriginal Slavery on the Northwest Coast of North America, and it just uh, is a great summary of everything we know about slavery in the area. Yeah.
1: I um, am going to use this time to say that you are listening to Folk U Radio on CKTZ 89.5 FM. If you have questions for Brian or about archaeology, we are going to have a very short break right now because we have a lot to cover still. Um, and you can call in during while you hear the music during this very short break to 250-935-0200. And when we come back, we are going to learn a little bit more about how we know about uh, the inequalities and the differences between the coastal archaeology and the inland archaeology of BC, and then go even deeper into some of these exciting topics uh, near and dear to Brian's heart and research. Mm
0: Under wide blue skies There's a place to lie For me, never in the hide the night I try my best to make it go But I'm not sure what I'm there please swing low tell me i got here at the right time and if i did it's probably the first time no second guessing is a secret signs. tell me i got here God, tell me I got here at the right time. Tell me I got, tell me I got here at the right time.
3: On and the moon is in the street, and the shadow boys are breaking all the laws. And you're east of East St. Louis, and the wind is making speeches, and the rain sounds like a round of applause. And Napoleon is weeping and the carnival saloon, his invisible fiance's in the like a train, you can see it getting smaller as it pulls away, and the things you can't remember, tell the things you can't forget, the history puts a saint in every dream, well she said she'd stick around until the bandages came off, but these mama's boys just don't know. Tilda asks the sailors all those dreams or all those prayers. So close your eyes, son, and this won't hurt a bit. Oh, it's time, time, time. It's time, time. thousand people.
1: This is CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. You are listening to Folk U Radio's 101 show. I am your host, Manda O. Fox Gillespie, and I am joined in the studio today by Dr. Brian Hayden, archaeologist. We have covered many thousands of years of BC history uh, and are talking a little bit more about what we know about the people uh, of BC and how things have changed. So Brian's going to remind you what we've covered so far about uh, BC's history, and he's gonna do so in just a few sentences, so forgive any uh, jumps or go and listen to the first part of the show. And, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what we know or uh, or think about the our way early ancestors in this area. Thank you, Brian.
2: Okay, so to uh, recap a little bit, uh, we were just talking about the uh, the first uh, people to arrive in North America, um, probably coming along the coast here, um, fourteen to twenty, fifteen to twenty thousand years ago or so, um, and as as them as being um, uh, simple hunters and gatherers and. I forgot to, um, to mention that uh, some of the other consequences of um, existing or living in a simple hunting and gathering band was that uh, because there's, sharing is so important, I mentioned that individualism was downplayed, uh, but also there was no competition in these groups based on economic production. Um, So no economically based competition at all, which is very different from our society, and very little, if any, individually owned materials. So everything got shared. Uh, These societies were as different as you can get from modern industrial society in terms of their values, their uh, social mores, And in every conceivable possible way, um, the minimal materialism, the minimal material things, everything that you uh, had, you had to carry with you. So it was very minimal amount of materials um, that were produced or used. Only the bare essentials. Um, So, and what we've just done in the last bit of the last hour was talk about some changes that started occurring about 4,000 years, four to 5,000 years ago in British Columbia, um, away from this simple hunting and gathering lifestyle. So the people are becoming more sedentary, uh, larger groups, uh, there's st- Staying in the same place longer time periods. They're starting to build more permanent structures. At least they, they were used on a seasonal basis. Um, they have started to uh, to exploit fish much more intensively, uh, and to be able to bring in more resources, so that the resource base is much more abundant. Uh, we get storage and. And I would like to emphasize one one thing I meant to do last hour was to emphasize that a lot of these changes probably took place because storage technologies developed. Um, Storage technologies are not self-evident. They take a fair amount of skill to develop um, so that things don't spoil, so that things have to be dried just right. Uh, Storage facilities have to be constructed. They tie you down. There are a lot of risks involved with storage between uh, animals coming in, between spoilage, between insects, between people stealing what you've stored. Uh, There's huge risks. So you have to overproduce to, to deal with those risks if you want to have enough to eat for the rest of the year. So that overproduction is a major aspect of storage and that leads i would argue and others have argued as well to surplus production and then the question becomes well how what do you do with the surplus if you don't need it if the risks don't materialize um and uh, what what i've argued is that we develop people in British Columbia and elsewhere in the world that began using storage technology, started developing techniques for uh, investing the surpluses, for using the surpluses for their own advantage. So with storage, we also get a major incentive to develop private property, because if you store it, you put a lot of effort into it, You har- not only in harvesting things, but also in... Um, in the storage facilities themselves and the time it takes to prepare things for storage properly. Uh, and so m- people are much more motivated to um, to call the stored food their own. And uh, as a result, because food is more abundant, because we we can store food and people can gather more food if they develop the techniques for that as well, Food is more abundant, as we can see from the rise in population levels, the number of sites, the size of sites over time. Uh, and so that, uh, you know, you don't have to share as much. Survival does not depend on sharing. If somebody goes hungry, more often it's because they're lazy or because they haven't um, Put in as much effort as other people, and people that have surpluses are become reluctant to share those uh, with just anybody because somebody else needs it. So we, we get a major transformation. This is a major watershed in different types of society, um, both in terms of social structure, in terms of values, uh it's a much it's starting to tilt towards more individualism with private ownership private control of resources um, individual households with material goods and surpluses and what do you do with the surpluses um we can talk about that a little bit more when we uh get into the interior um but some of the things you can do is uh Marriage payments, you can get a, a marriage partner by paying for them rather than just by negotiating. Uh feasting is another one. War allies, etc. There's a whole bunch of different ways that you can use surpluses to get uh, advantages for yourself. Um and storage I think is really critical in all that. Uh so that um I would I would say that um most people and most textbooks, they say that the key tra- the key development in the prehistoric past, which created inequalities and civilization and everything else, advanced technologies and specialization, was the development of agriculture and domesticated animals and plants. Um, but I would say no, that's not that was not. The watershed development. What the watershed development was, I think, the development of these complex kinds of hunting and gathering societies that had inequalities and private ownership and competition based on economic production. Uh, and this, this, is, this is what this period in British Columbia pre- prehistory represents. It's this switch Around four to five thousand years ago, between simple hunting and gathering, and complex hunting and gathering, um, and the two different two societies are completely different. The complex kinds of society, hunting and gathering societies really sets the foundation, uh, sets the framework for all of the other kinds of cultural developments that followed, that are based on surplus. Economic production, uh, individual pursuit of individual self interest, uh, inequalities, um, and in some sense or another, exploitation. Um, So, um, and we can see that happening in British Columbia, we can see it happening uh, in Europe at the end of the Paleolithic. We can see it happening in the Near East just before agriculture comes along. Uh, There was a question about Gobekli Tepe uh, that came in uh, after last week, and that is a major feature in this development as well. Um, So I just can't say enough about the importance of this transition from simple hunting and gathering to complex hunting and gathering. Virtually all of the things that people talk about as being the hallmarks of civilization, or the Neolithic, or coming from agriculture, basically th- those hallmarks begin with complex hunting and gathering. Uh, we get uh, fr- the hallmark of the Neolithic in the Near East is usually considered to be pottery. Well, pottery occurs twenty thousand years ago in the Paleolithic of uh, in the Old Stone Age of uh, China and Japan and Siberia. Uh, The use of metals. Well, the first metals uh, occur uh, among complex hunters and gatherers around the Great Lakes and here in British Columbia. Uh, I've excavated copper artifacts going back 2,000 years uh, in the sites where I've been working, and people were using copper here um, even before that. Uh, the use of groundstone tools, usually considered a hallmark of uh, Neolithic times. Well, no, they start here in among complex hunting and, and gathering groups in British Columbia, but also Japan, China, uh, and elsewhere as well, Europe, for instance. Um, the uh, What else do we have? We have uh, complex architecture. Uh, Gobekli Tepe is a prime example of that. But the houses that were being built here, um, some of the house posts weighed tons, and to put those up uh, required huge amounts of labor, not, not to mention carving them uh, or cutting down the trees. The, the boats that were 15 meters long, the war canoes, the, the seagoing canoes that developed on the coast here— uh, Those were monumental undertakings. Uh, They could carry, you know, 30, 40, 50 people or more. Uh, These were not simple canoes. They they weighed tons, uh, and the trees that came down, tens of tons. Uh, So comparable to putting up megaliths in Stonehenge. Um, So just remarkable achievements. There were burial mounds uh, in the Fraser Valley and Vancouver Island that are usually thought of as being Neolithic or Bronze Age, in um, in context and and to have those Neolithic or Bronze Age contexts. But they were putting up burial mounds that were uh, several meters high at least uh, in the Fraser Valley and in southern Vancouver Island. And those go back 1,500 years ago, sorry. Um, uh, So, uh, you know, we think of these burial mounds as being hallmarks of the early Maya civilization and groups like that. But no, they're they're occurring here among complex hunting and gathering groups. And the the burial mounds at Scowlets, for instance, up the Fraser Valley near Harrison, They had copper artifacts in them, too, or little copper disks going back uh, 1,500 years ago. Um, So whether it's monumental architecture, whether it's corporate kinds of kinship groups, uh, large residences, um, whether it's the use of metals, pottery, um, stratified, socially stratified societies, those all occur with with complex hunting and gathering groups way before there was any agriculture or domesticated plants or animals. So I can't, I can't emphasize enough the importance of these complex hunters and gatherers.
1: And if there was kind of a, a, a trigger that seems like you're saying that led to the development of these, it is around having surplus food and the technologies necessary to sustain surplus food.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, we're, as we were just talking about before the break, the um, site that Gary Copeland, or the burial that Gary Copeland excavated with 350,000 stone beads, disc beads, um, you know, that clearly shows that 4,000 years ago, there were major, major inequalities in wealth and power and control over labor. Um, and so we can start thinking about stratified societies back then, uh, probably chiefdom levels of organization and things like that. So uh, this, it's, a, it's a critical time period, and everything since then has basically been a refinement of those patterns. Uh, another indication uh, that uh, Don, Leland Donald talks about in his book on slavery is um, using linguistics— to estimate how old slavery was on the coast, it, it's hard to detect slavery uh, from archaeological remains because, as a rule, at least ethnographically, slaves weren't buried; they were tossed uh, on the trash heap in the open, or or thrown into the ocean, uh, and so their bones were scattered or consumed by scavengers. Um, so it's hard it's hard to 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 detect them archaeologically, but uh what has been done is looking at the different words for slaves in different languages on the northwest coast and uh, you can there's a technique for working back in time uh, looking at the changes over time that would have taken place in the form of these words and uh, it's called uh, historical or lexicostatistics um historical linguistics <clears throat> And, uh, you know, using that technique, uh, there are lots of, like, all the groups on the coast have words for slaves. Uh, So it's not a product of colonialism. It's not a product of European um, contact. It goes way back before that. And the estimates, based on linguistic evidence, is that, uh, you know, slaves probably, slavery probably existed or emerged uh, Two to three thousand years ago So um, the uh, the other thing that so that's another indication that there were major inequalities and a stratified society going back to this general time period um, four thousand years ago and subsequent uh, One of the other indications is that we get a major, and this, and there is good evidence for this archaeologically. Um, is there is evidence for uh, warfare that becomes more pronounced um, about the same time period, uh, beginning about four to five thousand years ago, in most areas of the coast, uh, so that we um, we start getting in burials uh, up around Prince Rupert, we get a very high incidence of of trauma related to, to warfare, whether it's uh, cranial fractures uh, or arm fractures, they're called parry fractures. You know, when you're trying to defend yourself, you put your arm up and if somebody's got a club, it breaks your arm. Uh, So there's a high incidence of these kinds of um, uh, trauma in the burials, uh, going back to, you know, Four or 5,000 years ago, among males, there was like the incidence of uh, fatal um, uh, attacks or fatal uh, confrontations is up around 20 to 30%. So that means, you know, if you have somebody in your family, the good chances are there'd be one person out of the family that would have been killed in either combat or other personal conflicts, so and then uh, and then we start getting uh, defensive ditches being constructed in uh, about uh, what was it? About uh, yeah, it's about a thousand years ago, a little bit more than a thousand years ago. Uh, so there seems to be a real uptake in warfare, and this all makes sense if. People are accumulating wealth. If people are are um, are uh, competing over sources of wealth, competing over marriage partners, competing over trade, competing over um, the control of labor, competing over how, surpluses and how to use surpluses, it only makes sense that there would be violent conflicts over these kinds of uh, issues and that they would become more and more pronounced and um, studies by uh, a fellow named Fry uh, who looked at uh, ethnographic comparisons said yes, there is a definite increase in warfare among complex hunting and gathering groups in the world compared to simple hunters and gatherers Um, so all of these, oh, and I was going to mention that even on Cortez, uh, you know, down at um, Manson's Park, uh, there's a shell midden site down there, and it's actively eroding away, um, and it's uh, more destruction of, you know, in a, a fairly important site on the island, but by nature, it's not people digging in it, but it's, it's still being destroyed. Uh, it'd be nice to stabilize that if it was possible, but I don't no, uh, you know, any sources of of funding that would uh, undertake that or f- would fund that. But I, what I was going to say is that there was an occupation on the spit of Manson's Park there, uh, just beyond the parking lot, and it's one of the places on the island where you can see actually some of the remains of these defensive ditches that were dug uh, between people who were camped out at that location and anybody else that wanted to attack them or but we get these defensive ditches uh, in lots of areas up and down the coast about a thousand thousand plus years ago.
1: Would a defensive ditch suggest that people were living there there then in established year-round villages or does it just mean that they were there? Um, for some substantial amount of time. I imagine you don't do a defensive ditch if you're just coming for a week.
2: Yeah, no, uh, they would probably camp there for uh, at least a month or perhaps the entire season uh, because there's a lot of shellfish in Manson's uh, Lagoon there. uh, So it would have been a major resource. So I would imagine they would be there for quite a while. But there's no major structures there, and that's the other thing that we get with uh, these complex hunting and gathering groups as they develop on the coast here and in the interior, is um, the development of large structures, which, uh, you know, at least I refer to them as uh, corporate residential, uh, corporate residential groups, so that uh, you've got a lot of families living in the same structure. And the the argument that I've always had uh, was that uh, people have a hard time living together uh, all the time, whether it's, you know, two people in a marriage or whether it's, uh, you know, you and uh, your parents or whether it's you and, you know, another family, whether they're related or not. There's always arguments. There's always differences about how things should be done and, you know— how to do things what should be done where things should be spent what should be uh, dealt with how to deal with children every there's arguments over everything and so it's really hard to get people to a large number of people to live in the same house together unless there's some sort of incentive unless there's some sort of uh, advantage and so what what we get in these uh, ethnographically at least um, but it makes sense. Is that these groups that people that live together in houses actually form the, what I would refer to as corporate kinship groups, uh, where the family, or the leader of the family, or the main members of the of a large family, own some important resources, whether it's the whether they're canoes, seagoing canoes, whether they are fishing spots, whether they're the nets, which are intensive, difficult to produce, but necessary for producing surpluses, whether they're hunting areas, you know, whatever the resource happens to be, uh, there's some resources they own that's very important um, for producing food and or for trade. And so that... um, when we start getting these large or these complex hunting and gathering groups, very often they they start getting structured in terms of corporate groups. And I really see these as functioning like little corporations because the ownership of the resources gets passed down from one generation to the next. Uh, so it persists over time. And there are some people that are the owners or the... The administrators of this, they're generally referred to as elites. And there are others that are workers that are less closely related, perhaps, or even not related at all. And then on the coast here, we had slaves, which uh, were important for producing a lot of the surpluses that were produced for ritual events and other things. That's one of Leland Donald's uh, main arguments. Um and so when we go down to places like um, Smelt Bay where there's a large village, remains of a large village still there in the park, you can walk into the remains of these large corporate residences. There's a, those are the big depressions that are just uh, close to the tree line there. Uh, now they're grassed over for the most part, but some of them are treed. Uh, but that's, that's what all these big residences represent and um <clears throat> and they were all owned by the uh, say the oldest person in a lineage of kinship uh, in a kinship, and he would be the what would be called the house chief, okay. And so when we get uh, a lot of the issues going on today in um, up north uh, with um, the land issues about, Hereditary chiefs versus the elected chiefs. Uh, the when the colonial government came in, they established the elected chiefs, which is everybody in the entire band. But the hereditary chiefs are the ones that led these families that owned resources traditionally, and so they their claim was that they own. Those resources, their family has always owned their resources, and they're the ones that have the rights to those resources, the rights to that land, and that no elected chief can tell them what to do with those resources, whether it's letting a a pipeline come through or letting anybody else use any, you know, hunt on that land or mine or do anything else on that land. And so that's where the big division comes in all these uh, you know, problems that we have today. And that's why there's this discrepancy between what the elected chiefs say. You know, the elected chiefs may want um, jobs and uh, things, and most people in the band may want the jobs that come with pipelines or other developments. But if it's on the land of the hereditary chiefs, they say, no, this is our resource, we don't want to here or we want to govern how that resources uh or the land is used and so we've got a real um sort of schizophrenic uh dialogue going on between the rights the traditional rights and the colonial rights if you like is uh, represented so um yeah, at any rate, I got off on the tangent, sorry.
1: <laughs> well, this is a good transition to talking a little bit more about the Keatley Creek Archaeological Site and the Hayden Project, named okay. after you. Um, <laughs> and you have books and numerous research studies on this site, but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit, uh, an overview about that and how uh, your knowledge of complex hunting and gathering societies was shaped uh, through your research in that site.
2: Okay. Well, um, I just want to uh, wrap up the discussion of the situation on the coast uh, before we get into that by saying that, um, uh, just as another little aside, is that the introduction of iron tools with uh, with the fur trade and other things Well, uh, the, also the fur trade basically put a lot more wealth into the societies here and so we get the explosion of or a cultural explosion of potlatching and art um, and uh, well firearms too, they, they had a big effect in terms of control and uh, uh, in terms of developing more complex kinds of organizations. At any rate, um, what I was going to say is that the introduction of iron and all this new wealth really created this um, this explosion of uh, cultural development on the coast uh, with virtually uh, tens of thousands of pieces of art being uh, created, masks and bowls and rattles and everything else uh, it it, uh, it catapulted the entire culture into a whole new dimension but the but following the original roots of the culture and uh, it was the it was the use of iron that made a lot of this possible as opposed to making these... Masks and uh, pieces of art and poles with stone tools—they uh, would have been much more modest in number and quality and elaboration uh, when people only had stone tools. With the advent of metal tools, it just—it uh, just opened the bo- opened <laughs> opened all the possibilities. And so, uh, we shouldn't think of a lot of the contemporary art that we. Where, historical art as being characteristic of the prehistoric period. And the potlatches were undoubtedly there, but much more modest, but still competitive in nature. Um, and we could go on about potlatching and feasting uh, for a long time. But let's get into the interior and the, uh, and the site of Keatley Creek, which is uh, where I've spent—well, I started excavating there in 1986— Uh, So it might be one of the longest-running excavations in Canada. Um, About 10 years ago, uh, and even a a bit before that, um, I started stepping back, and Suzanne Villeneuve has actually uh, taken over uh, the excavations there in the last 10 years and done a lot of investigations in the ritual structures at the site, uh, which are, I think, some of the, uh, well, which I'm pretty sure, are the only ritual structures that have been excavated in British Columbia to date and perhaps in Western Canada or the Northwest in general. So, uh, yeah, her work is uh, quite important. Um, and um, w- my, my own uh, interpretation is that these ritual structures. And they're, they're, they're not, you know, when we think of ritual structures, uh, a lot of times we think of um, grandiose temples and things like that. But no, the original, the initial ritual structures that we get archaeologically are very small buildings, maybe about as big as this room, which is a small room. Um, and maybe a little bit bigger. But at any rate, but they're not big. They're, they're made for a small number of people. Um, and these structures at Keatley Creek were um, on the outside of the core of the site. Like the core of the site has uh, over 100 pit house structures in it. And this is a site that's uh, up by Lillooet by the way, um, just along the Fraser River. We're up on one of the terraces above the Fraser River. So, yeah, it's about uh, 20 kilometers upstream from Lillooet um and it's one of the largest villages uh anywhere in British Columbia, prehistoric villages, uh and it dates back to about one to two thousand years ago, uh when the when the peak occupation was there. But we get occupations going back many thousands of years before that, but very sm- much smaller in scale. Um and so these uh these ritual structures are out uh on the edge of the site, you know, they're actually uh, just beyond the edge of the site, um, one or two hundred meters, and in one case, well, on one of the terraces, they're across a creek, so they're they're not easy to get to. You know, they're sort of secluded. They're not in the ma- and they're not in the middle of the site, and so the combination of small size and you know, sort of a little bit more remote from the site, some more secluded. Uh, it leads me to think that they were uh, being used by secret societies, um, and I just uh, just recently wrote a book on secret societies. So, in you know, throughout in many parts of the world, but it the structures at Keatley Creek are some of the things that got me most, most interested in secret societies. And I'm, you know, for my money, that's the best interpretation of those structures. Um, and the from the ethnographic comparisons and documentation in both on the Northwest Coast here and in California uh, and in other parts of the world where there, are, there were secret societies, it appears that the... These were organized not for the benefit of the community, although they said that they were always benefiting the community. But the people that joined them usually had to pay high high membership fees, high initiation fees. Uh, So it was only the wealthy, basically, that joined them. And they also got major benefits from the community uh, to support them. And, and there are a number of major statements saying that they, they were really ritual organizations run for the benefit of the people that are the members of the secret societies. And, and we could go on um, for quite a while talking about them, but because uh, they are absolutely fascinating. And I think we get some of the first evidence of that uh, at Keatley Creek. Um ethnographically on the coast here, uh one of the more famous ones was the Cannibal Society of the Kokwakiwak uh groups. And so these um <laughs> these were these were this was a group that um their major claim was that there are cannibal spirits in the woods, and these cannibal spirits can possess individuals so if you're not careful you can become a cannibal uh, yourself and go around, and as such you'd be a danger to the community but the members of the cannibal society know how to control these cannibal spirits and so they can protect the community and uh, in the initiations what they did was put young boys out in the woods and starve them half to death uh, and so they <laughs> they were very hungry when they came back from their seclusion, and uh, and they were possessed by the these cannibal spirits, and they would go around demonstrating how wild and crazy they were, and they would start biting people and doing all sorts of crazy things, and then the members of this cannibal secrets society, the Hamatsa society, would step in, and they would know the chants and the ritual ritual uh, uh, phrases to say to calm the the individuals who are possessed and they would know how to bring them back to normal kind of states and th- that was their initiation basically. Uh, so that's kind of the way they operated but to do that they required a lot of contributions from the community and, uh, and there's a lot of dispute as to whether there was actual Actually, any cannibalism involved or not, so uh are both sides of the argument go back and back and forth um, but any rate, so that that gives you a little bit of an idea of how some of these secret societies operated, and they would the members would meet in secret, and people would be uh, totally excluded from uh seeing their secret meetings, but then they would put on these public performances where they would bring in you know these people possessed by cannibal spirits and be able to uh, calm them and return them back to normal states uh, to demonstrate their power uh so um yeah there were and they became very powerful very very powerful within the communities so that's part of the dynamics and interestingly enough uh these are often called dance societies by the way um And so people, because people dance for hours and hours and hours to get into altered states of consciousness, um, and they would sing and drum and everything else. But in the area around Keatley Creek, uh, ethnographically, there were also these societies, um, and we have evidence that they go back probably 2,000 years uh, in these structures that uh, we've excavated at the site. So... The size, the size of the site, um, the recovery of uh, what's called jade—it's nephrite, but it's often called BC jade, which is very similar. Uh, the existence of these uh, things that we pretty—I'm, I feel convinced—are secret societies. Uh, differences in uh, in shells from the coasts, which got traded in in copper, in obsidian, which was traded in as well. Um, differences in the size of these corporate groups because we get some very large house pit structures there, 20 meters across di- in diameter, probably housed uh, upwards of 50 people, if not more. Uh, we can see that inside they're divided into one, one half that has large hearths, and large storage pits and another half that has very small hearths and no storage pits. So it looks like, you know, sort of the owners of the corporate group or the uh, the administrators, if you like, uh, versus the workers living in the same structure um, or perhaps slaves. Ethnographically, there were slaves. Uh, ethnographically, chiefs had, on the coast here, chiefs had up from twenty to fifty slaves. And uh yeah, slavery could uh, constitute uh, on average about ten to fifteen percent of the entire village population were slaves. Um but they could get, could get up to twenty five, thirty percent. Um but at any rate there were slaves in the in the interior as well, um <clears throat> ethnographically and uh I, I think to make some of these nephrite adzes, uh, which would take upwards of 100 hours to make one adze, I think that, that may be an indication that there was slave labor as well. Uh, but we get different, major differences in uh, material culture, in materialists. We know that they're trading with the coast. Uh, Simon Fraser, when he came through, people in Lillooet could draw him maps of how to get to, at 1800, how to get from Lillouette to the coast. So there's obviously a lot of interchange, uh, and we can trace that back archaeologically several thousand years at least, uh, if not more.
1: So, th- like this sort of you know amazing and relatively um, uh, complex society. Yes ended <laughs> although it, it appears right that that people have continuously um inhabited that the Lillooet area but but they uh abandoned this particular site uh is that right and and what is your speculation on why right um <clears throat> so
2: yeah, one of the surprising things was that this large village, one of the largest in in western Canada, uh seems to have been abandoned uh, very suddenly and very purposefully uh, around 1000 years ago. <clears throat> and uh and there are major changes that also occur on the coast about 1000 years ago as well, the the burial mounds that I mentioned, they stopped being made and um other things but there are, there are other sites around Lillooet that also uh, seem to be abandoned other large sites not as large but uh, comparatively large sites seem to be abandoned about the same time period and so the question is well what was going on to make people abandon these large sites so and there was very clearly a major drop in the uh, total population of the area um, so that um the area was not completely deserted i mean we get some people hanging on but what the cause of that is is uh still not resolved uh, it could have been uh increase in warfare but we don't find any evidence of dead bodies in the in the sites and the sites seem to have been very deliberately abandoned uh the house posts seem to have been taken out and the remaining structures burned down on purpose, there's no, no valuables really left in the house, as though people had been attacked and couldn't uh, didn't have time to take things with them. No, everything's been taken out of value. Um, and so was it a, a shift in the climate that reduced the amount of fish? Because these were groups that were very highly dependent on salmon runs. Uh, that was the mainstay of the economy, and the trade uh, could go into that. Uh, so that's another possibility. Uh, another possibility was that there was a landslide uh, that blocked the salmon from getting up into the interior, uh, and there's a good spot about uh, uh, 15 kilometers below Lillooet where there was definitely a major landslide and it, the and the road is still sloughing off, uh, so we know there was a landslide. But was it something more regional than that or not? Uh, we still don't know. It, there's a number of competing ideas about that. So, and I just realized that if we're going to talk about some of the questions uh, that were came in we should probably talk about them really quickly
1: it's it's also interesting i'm going to bring you back to talk about secret societies because okay i, I think we could really feel exciting oh, two yeah, hours. Feasting too yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had a lot of questions about mm. um or we had a lot of interest in Beckley to pay which you've mentioned a couple of times here yeah. and shares at least in common with what uh, with Keatley Creek a strange abandonment and so what I understand about that site is that it's about 12,000 years old um, and it's it uh, quite complex um, and so I guess I'd be curious as to what do you make of it and in particular why was it then abandoned so suddenly and from the understanding it was carefully built Buried when it was abandoned.
2: Yeah, well, Göbekli is probably one of the most outstanding sites in the world. Uh, It it was just completely mind blowing. It's uh, it's got these megalithic pillars that have been sculptured with power animals, you know, scorpions and bulls and uh, boars and all sorts of other things. Um, And these pillars are uh, comparable to the kinds of stones used to build Stonehenge. And when people, and those were from early Bronze Age, um, when people first uh, saw the site, they thought it was Bronze Age. But no, it's not. It's from the very earliest part of the Neolithic, 12,000 years ago. But at the site, there's no indication of any domesticated plants or domesticated animals. So we're looking at, again, hunting and gathering society, and, um, and this must have been a complex hunting and gathering society to, to build something like this. Somebody was controlling the labor and the wealth necessary to construct these um, these buildings. And there's uh, maybe a dozen of them there. Only a few of them had been excavated. But they are absolutely remarkable. they like mini stone hinges you know, put in the ground. Um, and so I, my... Like there's a lot of... Dispute about them in terms of how to interpret them, but they are absolutely mind-blowing from the perspective of hunting and gathering societies, uh, comparable certainly to the the major the multi-ton totem poles that got put up here on the coast. Uh, so I would once again argue that they are complex hunting and gathering societies. And my take on it is that they were probably built by Secret Society members, too, because Secret Societies control wealth. They control labor. They have power animals. They have uh, most of the characteristics that you get at at Gobekli. And uh, it's also got the first evidence for brewing that we have of beer or wines or things like that. It's, a, it's an absolutely incredible site, and it's way up on the top of a mountain with a you know, view of everything, no water nearby, no residences nearby, so it's remote. It's the kind of thing you would expect from people that wanted to conduct rituals in private. Um, so anyway, that's—yeah, I can't say enough about Gobekli. It's, it's just an amazing—it was, was a watershed kind of site. It just completely transformed what we thought about the Neolithic. And hunters and gatherers.
1: (laughs) We only have like a minute left. But one of the things that I don't fully understand and um, that maybe you can just sort of give us a hint as to is with things like Gobekli, which seems so advanced for their era, why is there not more examples of of that kind of advancement in other areas um, around something like a Gobekli?
2: Well, there are other sites that have similar kinds of things, not as, not as elaborate in that region. Um, but you need, you need a really good resource base, like on the northwest coast here, to start uh, developing the kind of power and inequality and wealth differentials that are necessary to create those kinds of structures and uh, social structures and relationships. And I just want to zip in here for one quick minute, because there was a question about prehistoric matriarchies. And uh, basically what we get ethnographically and prehistorically is um, what we call matrilineal societies where descent is traced through the female line, the mother. Um, but in all those ethnographic societies, it's usually their brothers who, uh, have, who actually administer the corporate groups and the descent lines and all the economics and that have the political and ritual power. Uh, so that, uh, you know, one anthropologist after another has dealt with this. And, uh, Lynn Meskel is the most recent one, uh, one of the most recent ones and all of them have found that there is absolutely no basis at all for this idea of a prehistoric matriarchy, uh, not to mention uh, an ethnographic matriarchy. They just don't exist. And so a uh, study was done by Carolyn Fleur Lo- Lobin uh, in Current Anthropology, same conclusion with Peggy Sandé and Michelle Rizaldo. They all conclude the same thing. that This is just um, yeah, an unsupportable idea that's uh, been popular in feminist literature and, Uh, in Romantic literature, but there's no basis for it in archaeological or ethnographic fact.
1: Uh, A girl can dream.